Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. I'm Megan Gibson, Executive Editor of Foreign in London. It's Monday, the 29th of May. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, our guest is the historian Sergei Plocky, a professor and the director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard, and the author of a number of books, including his latest, The Russo-Ukrainian War. He joins me at the New Statesman studio to discuss Putin's war on Ukraine, the end of the Russian Empire, and what the new world order could look like. Sergei Plocky, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off talking about your your new book, which is a history of a war that is very much still happening, which is unusual for a historian to undertake. What was behind the decision to write this book now? Yes, it is quite unusual. It's even scary (laughs) for a historian to write on things that really develop, that certainly far from over as far as we understand today. And our wisdom as historians normally comes from the fact that we already know how things turned out. Mm-hmm. So we are sort of Monday quarterbacks. We, <laughs> we go back and say who got things right, who got things wrong, what are the lessons? And that's, that, that book was different. And um, the idea to write it was partially related to the fact that there was so much history and bad history in particular involved in Putin's attempt to really justify this war. There was an article by him a few months before the start of the war, the speech that was one of the speeches really, de facto declaration of the war, dubbed as a history lecture. And that was the situation when those articles in particular appeared uh, many in my colleagues and I at that time as well decided not to get engaged because that meant also providing sort of a legitimacy to the argument that is there, that you're arguing with that, when it was, in in fact, a propaganda piece. But once the war started, the situation changed. I thought that we historians in general, we couldn't just stay silent anymore. And uh, that's how I got into writing this book. 
There was also history of different kind related to that war. And that important task of historians, among many other things, is also to look and try to understand and explain to others the origins of the war. How did we get there? And at the end of the day, I convinced myself that I write about that in the book, that historians are probably the worst commentators on the contemporary developments, except everybody else, to misquote Winston Churchill. (laughs) So here I am. And this book and this war is obviously personal for you. Was your personal and emotional investment in the conflict difficult to navigate while writing the book? Uh, I can say that once the war uh, started, there was a state of a shock, right? And there was... How did you first hear about it? I, I describe that in the book again. Uh, the tension, the build-up was to the war, and the coverage in media was there all the time, and I was also asked to comment on that for media. So it wasn't like something that we completely couldn't imagine, right. but still... When it happened, it was a complete shock, which tells me that there is some sort of disconnect in my case, but probably many other people as well, between things that, between emotional side of how we deal with things and then intellectual one. And for me, with the start of the war, the original reaction was, okay, just it's criminal, it's madness, it's, you can't really explain that. I remember reading memoirs of one of distinguished Harvard professors, Richard Pipes, who was had extremely sharp mind, very good writer, uh, who left Poland. He was of Jewish background. He left Poland at the start of World War II. And in his memoirs, he was writing about Holocaust as basically, it's black box, it's evil. He, his mind would not go there. He would analyze everything else, but not that. And that was my state, really, at the start of the war. I didn't think that this is something that can be somehow intellectually analyzed or explained. But then later on, media kept asking me about the commentary on that as a historian. And that gave me some confidence that maybe I basically have some insight. Maybe I have a particular angle, a particular knowledge that I can talk about that war that can explain to myself and also to others as well something that we don't see, some, something that we don't understand. And once I got that there, then I got more or less in the area, in the field, that which is familiar to me as a historian, right? So I asked questions that historians ask, and I applied to myself the same standards in terms of the critique of the sources, into the of the objectivity to, to to the degree that we human beings can actually be objective, as I would apply to writing on the 17th, 16th, 17th century history. That, that That's where I started as a historian. So it's, and in that sense, the book has a very personal introduction, right? I, I write about all those things, how, how, where I was, how I reacted to the war, and there are personal elements also in the acknowledgements. But in between those two, very personal bookends. There is a work of contemporary history. I did it according to the standards of the field as much as I could do that. And obviously, you just mentioned and you make very clear in the book that this war didn't just start on February 24th, 2022, or even in 2014, that the roots go much further back. There's a chapter in your book called Democracy and Autocracy. 
which examines the different political ideas between Russia and Ukraine that they have embraced. So just as a bit of maybe background for our listeners, what accounts for the different directions that the societies of Ukraine and Russia went in after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Why why did Ukrainians turn to democracy when Russians did not? Yes, this is a big question because this war not is just portrayed, but in, in my understanding and understanding of certain Ukrainians who fight on the front line is the war between democracy and autocracy. It sounds cliche, it's, it sounds simplification, but the more I was looking into that, the more evidence I was, I was finding that was indeed the case. And from the perspective of the late 80s, early 90s, this is a very particular development because at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, there were big hopes about the end of history, the ultimate victory of the liberal democracy, and those hopes were associated first and foremost with Russia, with Ukraine. There was Boris Yeltsin standing on the tank and defending Russian democracy, and Ukraine at that time was run by the much more conservative former communist elite. But it turned out very differently in, in the next 30 years, with Yeltsin already two years later ordering his tanks firing at the same building of the Russian parliament that he defended two years earlier, rewriting constitution, creating the sort of the power that that Putin, when he came to power, used to turn Russia into much more autocratic. And Ukraine, on the other hand, was the democracy that came in the late 80s and early 90s was strengthened and actually survived this entire turmoil of the 1990s. Despite the best efforts of the former party elite in Ukraine to follow the Russian model, they were trying one thing after another. Yeltsin had a referendum grabbing as much presidential power as possible. The Ukrainian elite wanted to do that as well. But each time the Ukrainian elite was getting a pushback, it was getting a pushback from the people. And the most prominent cases of that happening were the Orange Revolution of 2004, the Euro Revolution that then turned into a revolution of dignity of 2013, 2014. Nothing of that sort ever happened in Russia. And for me as a historian answering the question why it, it happened that way, I had to go deeper in history. And to say it in, in a very, in a very um, maybe um, succinct and simple way, I see that the reason for that sort of differences and differences in the post-1991 trajectory of Russia and Ukraine in deeper history and relations between the society and the state. Mm. In Russia, for Russians, it's, it, it was always very difficult. It's difficult today to imagine their own existence outside of the state. For Ukrainians, and Ukrainian project emerged in the opposition to multiple states. It was very difficult to learn how to domesticate the state, <clears throat> how to live in the state that is your own, a state that you don't oppose, that, right. that, that you don't somehow try to undermine con consciously or unconsciously. And that the society, Ukrainian society and the state, they found a common ground finally after the start of the war in 2014. And major transformations happened in Ukraine between 20, 2014 and now 2022, 2023. But the reason was basically, at least in my, in my reading, a very different relationship of two societies to the state. Russia... Mm, 
for most of its history was imperial power. It was about the power of the state and service to that imperial state. When Ukraine was about undermining multiple empires, from Russian to Habsburg to Ottoman. That's, it's so fascinating. I'm glad you mentioned the ongoing kind of challenges of Ukraine trying to assert itself as a democratic nation. We saw earlier this year even Zelensky's drive to eradicate corruption within his own government and that push showing that there's still internal struggles for Ukraine to achieve true democracy. So that brings up a question for me. Has Do you think that the war has cemented the, I guess you could call it the democratic urge within Ukrainian society? Or was it already given all that you've talked about, the political culture, that Ukraine would eventually become a successful liberal democracy at some point? Yes, the story of Ukrainian democracy starts before this war. And what happened with the war was that democracy became in Ukraine much more effective than it was before. What was before 2014 was the country pretty much divided. Every presidential elections would represent more or less the same picture, the electoral map. The West and the center would vote mostly for pro-European candidates and the East and South would vote mostly for the, not pro-Russian per se, but certainly oriented toward more like Russian and Soviet models, political models, economic models, relationships, and so on and so forth. And in that sense, the country was really quite often in the, in this sort of a change in course from one presidential election to another. It's almost like the United States. There would be 2% of the voters that would decide which way it would go. One government would set one course, another would change it. And that, certainly the country was democratic, but there, there was not enough consensus. For democracy, you need also some consensus to, to agree on something, to move somewhere. And that wasn't there. And it came in 2014. It came after 2014. You see now the map, the electoral map, when it comes to presidential elections, not parliamentary, to presidential, completely changed. There were two presidential elections. One brought to power President Petro Poroshenko, another Volodymyr Zelensky. They are very different candidates, very different platforms. But both of them, they carried the absolute majority of the precincts of this. And in that sense, I can't say that the war added democracy, <laughs> but it made democracy actually much more effective, which means it's it's, it's good thing not just for the... Uh, Ukrainian state, Ukrainian population, but for the future democracy itself, because one one of the ways or the reasons in which most of the post-Soviet states, after playing with the democracy, eventually gave up on it because they, the democracy was something that they didn't think was serving them well, that the population serving well in general. And that was, for a long period of time, danger in Ukraine as well. Do you think around 2014 and certainly after the narrative about the extent of pro-Russian sentiment in Crimea was overstated? What we know is that I'm the director of the Ukrainian Research Institute at Harvard and we have the MAPA Digital Atlas of Ukraine project with a number of modules. One of them we were monitoring and putting on the map attitudes of the Ukrainian citizens, polling data on their relationship to Russia. 
And if the, um, let's say, the sort of the drive of Crimea for independence and against Ukraine would be a real thing and would not be just inspired and brought from outside and brought by the Russian occupation of the peninsula, the time for that to happen was in the late 1990s. Since then, the number of people who were accepting and embracing the Ukrainian state, including the Crimea, was growing. Before the start of invasion in 2014, what we had, the data was that up to 40% of the population of the Crimea, uh, it's not that they wanted to join Russia, but they actually preferred the arrangement in which Russia and Ukraine would stay as separate states, but there would be a porous borders, sort of a European Union type of arrangement. And then happened, then, then happened the occupation of the peninsula. The war started in, in February of 2014. The Russian special forces took over the buildings of the Crimean parliament, the, the offices of the Crimean government. And they, under the occupation, within a few short weeks, a referendum was announced mm-hmm. uh, with crazy Soviet-era numbers of people who allegedly participated and voted. No international observers, sorry, independent observers. No international observers. And that's the question. If there there was indeed such strong support for leaving Ukraine, for joining Russia, why the referendum would happen under occupation, why the referendum would, uh, there would be no independent observers, So unfortunately, in every case when it comes to Russia today and since 2014 for sure, the polling data, we can't rely on that. It's not a free society for answering in one way or another or quote-unquote the wrong way. The question from a pollster, you can get a prison sentence today in Russia. You can be accused of undermining Russian army or undermining Russian state and so on and so forth. It is it is a very authoritarian regime, and that's something that is by now a problem not just for Russians inside Russia, it's it's problem for the entire world. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman, in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes audio long reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. The expensive house that sucked up a lifetime's wages became the savings account, the pension, the inheritance... That wealth is now beginning to dissolve. Featuring writing from our authors, including Will Dunn on the Great Housing Con, Why the Coming Crash Will Rewrite the Economy, Sophie McBain on What's Behind the Surge in Adult ADHD Diagnoses. It's not pure coincidence that ADHD diagnoses have risen alongside the internet's attention economy, a vast infrastructure that has been designed to capture and monetize people's focus. And Carl Uwe Knausgaard on why the novel still matters. The poet Rainer Maria Rilke once wrote that music could lift him up. Of course, there's nothing remarkable about that. Only he then added, and put me down somewhere else. I recognise that quote so well, especially when it comes to literature. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. 
Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You write in the book about this war being Putin's war, that it was not inevitable, but it was a decision he took almost unilaterally. But what level of support does the conflict have within Russia? Yes, one of the chapters is called Putin's War, which focuses on the on the ideology behind this war, the decision-making to a degree that we can understand it today, and it, indeed it puts Putin at the very center, at the very center of that story. But it's not just Putin's war, to a degree that the Nazi, Ger- Nazi Germany and its war was not just Hitler's war, despite the fact that there are numerous books and articles with that title. We see that the, to a degree that we can understand, there has been enormous support in Russia for the annexation of the Crimea back in 2014, something that added to Putin's popularity, provided additional legitimacy to whatever legitimacy there existed for his rule and for his regime. And to a degree that we can trust or understand today's polling data, it's the support for this special military operation was quite high in Russia as well. The majority of the population supported that. The support dropped quite significantly last fall, around the time of the of the mobilization that put Putin started mobilization the russians didn't mind the war and what was happening there but they didn't want something didn't affect them exactly exactly and now i certainly agree with those commentators who say that it's not support apparently continues to, to fall the um, some observers are saying it's not like the Russians don't like the war; they don't like to fight it, and and then they don't like to lose it. Uh, but again, we are really on very shaky ground when it comes to understanding w- w- what is happening today in in. Russia, beyond the fact that society was brainwashed for at least twenty years. Watching from the conflict from the West, I think it's quite easy to see the many failures on the battlefield of Russian armed forces and think that obviously this war has exposed how false the idea of Russia as a great military power was. And it's also, Russia's also become an economic pariah in the West, but Russia's not viewed in the same way outside of the West, across the global South, where, you know, 
a lot of states have resisted aligning with the U.S. and Europe on the issue. So on balance, is Russia still a global power? Does it still have a place on the world stage where it exerts influence? Uh, Russia stopped being global power back in 1991. It's Barack Obama offended apparently Putin by saying that it was a regional power. But I think Obama was right in that regard. This war partially is there because Russians, R- Russian idea to reinstate its status not as global power but as a great power, which, which means basically regional power, and to create a situation where Russia would be one of the poles in multipolar world uh, on par with China and on par with the European Union. And to do that, Russia had to, in one way or another, mobilize resources of the post-Soviet space. Ukraine is the second largest post-Soviet republic. So for any Eurasian Union type of integrationist, reintegrationist project, Ukraine was absolutely essential. That That's why, that's at least one of the reasons why we have war in Ukraine. Now, what did the war do to, to, to this Russian dreams and ideas about return to the great power status. As you said, it's a certainly a diminished force when it comes to military. They were boasting that they were the second most powerful army in the world. Ukrainians are saying today that they turned out to be the second most powerful army in Ukraine. And economically, the Russia is doing better under the sanctions than was predicted, but it doesn't mean that it is doing good. And it's, again, another indication. It's getting closer to China as a junior partner in China and India uh, 24-7 take advantage of the lower prices that Russia offers them. Uh, no, we're, we're not a global power and very diminishing, very fast diminishing regional power as well. That being said, not... the open allies of Russia are really very limited. Even China that supports Russia officially declares neutrality. It's pro-Russian neutrality, but it is neutrality. The same is true for India. The big question is about, quote-unquote, global south. And what is happening there, Russia, while conducting the really imperial war against one of its former possessions, Mm -hmm. tries to appeal to the global south saying that they're waging anti-imperial war against the West. And that argument actually gets a lot of traction. It's absolutely misunderstanding on the part of the countries that in one way or another solidarize themselves with Russia, what this war is about, what is Ukraine, where is Ukraine, what are relations between Russia and Ukraine. But that is, that, that is what is happening. And the main reason is basically the continuing anti-Western, really, sentiments, anti-American, anti-Western sentiments in the big part of Africa and Asia and so on and so forth. And that's a very worrisome situation in which not so much Russia, but China certainly is trying to be present there. And West in general and democracies in general are losing their ground in that, in, in that part of the world. So it's really an invitation to, to all of us, to politicians in particular, to think about what, is, what the policy toward that former colonial, colonial world has to be because just being here and saying good things about democracy and even in Ukrainian case, 
fight an anti-imperial war and then seeing zero solidarity from the rest of the colonies is quite frustrating. It's obvious, and you mentioned that this war has marked a turning point when it comes to Putin's imperial ambitions. But are we witnessing the final collapse of his ambitions or the Russian Empire? I would say yes to the to, to the first part of the question and probably no to, to the second one. So I have no doubt that this war really marks the end of Putin's regime. Uh, it didn't go well. It didn't strengthen it. It weakened it. We don't know how long it would last, but certainly that's the, the, the war. We talk about different reasons. One of them is him thinking about his legacy as, quote-unquote, gatherer of the Russian lands, of the former Soviet lands. It didn't go that way. The regime is in crisis. With regard to the Russian imperial ambitions, I have no doubt that this war will really be an important step toward really defeating those ambitions. Whether this is the final chapter, the final battle in the story of the disintegration of the Russian Empire, I don't know. Because the, that process started really during World War One, And empires can go through this period of decline for a long period of time. The Ottomans started to... The decline over the Ottomans started in the late 17th century, going all the way into the 20th. And then you look at ISIS, you look at the wars in Yugoslavia. This is still former, largely former Ottoman possessions that are still trying to find... Again, the Turkey is not there anymore in most cases as an imperial force, but the rearrangement of that region, the movement of borders still goes on. So the point is that these processes can take time and time of more than one generation of people. So finally, you've obviously written in the past a lot about nuclear disasters and With the war in Ukraine, with its dangers around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, it's made those dangers particularly relevant. You've warned that no nuclear power plant should be built in the future going forward. But is there any lessons that states could take from this war and apply in order to secure their existing plants? Uh, mm, mm, Yes, you you referred to my article in The Economist uh, where there was a qualifier What I said was that we have no business of building any new nuclear power plants unless we found the way how to protect the existing ones from the threats of the war. And the latest G7 meeting in in Hiroshima, uh, one of the big issues on the agenda, there has been the statement uh, pledge not to use nuclear weapons in the future. I personally believe that we, and talking about we, I talk about the public in general, uh, we should start a campaign making the governments, the global governments, making a pledge uh, not to attack and not to invade the nuclear sites at the time of the war. We should make the um, actions like happened during this war, the takeover of Chernobyl during the very first day of the Russian all-out invasion, the takeover of Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. We have to make this that sort of actions as much of a taboo as yesterday, the use of the nuclear weapons. Because if you don't do that, we're in trouble in general because no one that I heard 
thinks that this is the last war. The construction of the mm, nuclear mm, power plants continues. That there is there are ideas about bringing of new modular reactors, which means that if that happens, the mm, they will would be much more uh, that sort of reactors around the world, including in the countries and in the regions where wars happened historically and probably would continue happening again. So it's a huge issue. We turned out to be completely unprepared how to deal with that. And unless there is a mobilization and some push comes from below, I don't see also governments now either understanding fully what is what happened or prepared to act. Apart from the just threat of the radiation poisoning, contamination of huge territories and so on and so forth, there is also the issue of the climate change, right? Many people think that maybe nuclear is part of the solution. If if the mm, reactors are attacked in the future, nuclear, nuclear will not be part of the solution to the climate change. Nuclear will become part of the way for the fossil destruction. Zeri Plocky, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. Thank you for this discussion. It was a pleasure. That's all the time we have for today. Join us Thursday for our discussion episode. If you've enjoyed this episode of Worldview, please leave us a review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.